All right, everybody. Well, again, just want to say thank you so much for uh, coming out tonight, and especially for all who, uh, who made something. I, I did not make anything, but uh, for all of you who did, and Papa bringing the KFC chicken, that was, that was a special touch. Thank you for that. If you have a Bible, can you go ahead and open with us to 1 Corinthians chapter 6? As you're turning there, I'll just say a couple of introductory comments. Uh, first of all, our church has been around for just over five years, and we, we've never actually had an entire teaching time on the topic of LGBT issues. And so, uh, this is really our first time dealing with it with an extended kind of way. And um, let me just give you a little snapshot of tonight and then next Thursday night, Lord willing. Tonight, we're going to start with Scripture, and then we're going to spend a lot of time looking at what the world is sort of saying and how the world got to how it is today. So tonight, the focus will be largely on sort of how did the world get to where it is, what were some of the developments of thought that got to where we are on the topic of, uh, of LGBT issues. And then uh, next week, we're going to spend the vast majority of the time walking through all the texts in the, in the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, on the topic of these issues, uh, human sexuality, uh, homosexuality, transgenderism, all that stuff. And so, um, if you're not satisfied with the amount of time we're in Scripture tonight, just know next week that's going to be the focus next week. But tonight, I, I really do think it would be good to see the development of thought historically of how we got to where we are and what are some of the things that are being uh, believed, taught, caught in the, in the air that especially if you are… So, I'm in my early 30s, my age and younger especially, uh, this is going to be where you're going to be uh, especially vulnerable to these kinds of things and ways of thinking. And uh, before we jump into all that, uh, I'm going to get Jerry to re read the passage for us. Uh, this is 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 20, and then Jerry can uh, open us in prayer. And I am not in my early 30s. <laughs> but I, here's a, one thing I would say, though, is I think it's going to be easy for us to throw somebody under the bus today and to say, oh, those people and the way they're thinking and they're so out to lunch. But I think we need to examine our own hearts on how much maybe we've been conned by the same sort of thinking, um, especially on kind of making ourselves um, the idol or the God of our, our whole world. So, um, you know, I think that's a good thing for us to get, consider beforehand, especially because our hearts are deceitful above all things. We looked at that in Say School a couple weeks ago. And so we know all day long that we're getting lied to um, and, uh, and we cannot trust, we cannot trust our our thoughts here, and that's why it's great to have Scripture to, to go to. Chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do, you not, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But, this is great. That is where people are maybe, but, look at this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful to me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? 
Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So there is a little bit of a, uh, a contrast to some other sins there. Uh, yeah, it's interesting, verse, eight, verse 18. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Father, we are so grateful that we're not our own anymore. When we ran our own life, um, there was heartache and misery and uh, just one sinful, uh, hostile thought um, after the other. And thank you, Lord, for freeing us, from redeeming us from that sin, that we are not slaves uh, to sin any longer, sexual sin or any other sin, and that you bought us at a price. Um, therefore, Lord, we want to honor you with our bodies. And today, as we look um, at this, this fascinating but difficult topic, we pray that we would uh, be enlightened by, uh, by your word um, by what we can learn and use um, this time tonight for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we, again, jump into all these things, going back to this passage, Jerry, with uh, 9 to 11, let me read it one more time. Uh, this is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Paul writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. So there's, there's going to be a temptation on some of these issues for us as Christians to be deceived. This is not new. This was written 2,000 years ago, and he says, listen, you will be tempted to think that people who practice, make a, make a lifestyle of practice of the things listed here, which, by the way, nobody in this room is innocent on this list. This, this list gets all of us in one way or another. And so, uh, Paul is saying here, don't be deceived that people who are living this as an unrepentant lifestyle and any of these things listed here, that they will inherit the kingdom of God. So, verse, middle of verse 9, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. So just pause there. Some of the Corinthians were homosexual before their conversion. Some of them were adulterers before their conversion. Some of them were sexually immoral and promiscuous before their conversion. Remember, to be a Corinthian was, a, was almost a slang term. It's almost like Las Vegas. You know, it's, no, it's sin city. I mean, to be a Corinthian was to be known as being sexually immoral. There were people in the congregation who were thieves and greedy and drunkards formerly in their previous life. Then he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So, Jerry, how does the gospel speak to that whole list of sin that we're all guilty yeah, one I, way or another? I love it. And, and, and I think in answer to that question, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. He just frees us through the gospel. And I think tonight, that's what we want to say. We want to say the, the group of uh, sexually immoral, which really includes all of us to some degree, but those that are practicing that and are not repentant of that, there's just a better way. That is not where they're going to um, truly get the joy and the peace and the love of Christ 
And so that's where our heart's burden tonight is to say, would anyone turn away from that and turn toward Jesus? Let the gospel free them. And, and what this, the statement that strikes me in verse 19, you are not your own. Because so many of the things you're talking about tonight, Mark, are this idea that I am my own. Like no one should be fiddling in my business because I, it's all about me. And, uh, and here we are freed from ourselves. We are not our own. We've been bought at a price. And so that's why we get to glorify God with our body. If, if someone was, was in a, in a biblically defined immoral lifestyle, why is it good news that they could be set free from that lifestyle, whatever it may be? You know, it, it's any, straight, any kind it could be. How would, you, yeah. how would you say that's good news? I say think Christ is just always so much better than sin. You know, we get caught into thinking that sin's really the way to go, but it isn't. That's not where true satisfaction is. That's not where true joy is. And... Um, and that's not why we were made. That's not why we're here. We were made to glorify Him. And so that's the only thing that's going to bring true satisfaction. It's never going to be sin. Sin's never going to satisfy us. And we all know that. Every one of us that knows Christ knows that sin is not all that it's um, made out to be. And um, even though we get fooled and conned into uh, uh, committing sin. We know that that's not what brings God glory, nor does it bring us joy. Yeah, that's good. And so, um, a lot of what we're going to be talking about tonight uh, is from Carl Truman's book. And th this is, I will, I will tell you, it's, it's, a, it's been a challenging book for me to try to work through, and I haven't finished every page, but his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. It just came out in the last year or so, and uh, much of what I'm, almost everything I'm saying tonight is from from him. He's, he's a Christian, uh, a really great theologian, but uh, he is just trying to help us understand how we got to where we are. So, let, let me just jump in with a few random thoughts uh, as we develop, and we have a, an outline that we want to walk through tonight. And the point tonight isn't to be sort of like, you know, a bash se session where we just kind of hit this over the head. The point is to really understand. We, we want to better understand why things are the way that they are. So, Carl Truman says uh, this, 50 years ago, if a 20-year-old went to a doctor and said, I have what's often called gender dysphoria, where I have confusion about my own gender, I, I know that I'm biologically, I am a man, that's obvious to me, but inwardly, I feel like I am a woman. I, I feel more true to myself as a woman. If, if a person came to a doctor and said that 50 years ago, the doctor, just like today, would say that we have a, a problem here. This is, this, is, this is a problem that needs to be resolved. But 50 years ago, a doctor would say, the, the problem is with your mind. The problem is with the way that you're thinking and feeling, and what needs to happen is we need to find a way through whether therapy or whatever we need to do, but we need, we need to find a way for you to, to, to change your thinking to conform to the reality of who you are. You're, you're obviously a man, and, and you're, you need to work on this psychologically. If, if a 20-year-old today, and you know what I'm going to say, goes to the doctor and says the same thing today, the doctor says, that's a problem, but they're not going to say it's with your thinking. It's gonna, they're going to say it's a problem with your biology. It's a problem with your body. And so we need to find a way to make your body conform to your feelings rather than 50 years ago trying to find a way to make your thinking and feeling conform to your body. Now, again, you don't have to be Christian to just realize that's a massive transformation. That's a huge change. And Truman's goal in this book is really to try to understand how did that happen? How did it happen where something that was intuitive and common sense half a century ago is now not just different but backwards from what it was then, and it's changed dramatically? And and uh, I don't, tonight I'm trying to balance between 
naming a bunch of people and putting us all to sleep, okay? And the other side is not giving enough detail. So I'm, I'm trying to balance between the two things here. But uh, Truman thinks that you've got a combination of, of thought that comes together to get where we are. So uh, over the centuries, you'll have very well-known people, and we won't walk through each of these people in detail, but let me just list a few people. And I'll, just kinda, I'll read this list off, and then we'll kind of go through this a little bit more in detail. If you, even in the sermon on Sunday, I talked about how oftentimes our intuition is the primary authority in our life, which is our instinct for what we think feels right to us. And oftentimes, it's not a clear exegesis of Scripture that we come to conclusions. It's often a snap judgment based on our intuition and emotion. You know what I'm talking about? So it's, it's and that, how does that happen? We absorb culture and we absorb everything around it. We, commercials, in, Instagram, social media, Facebook, Twitter, the news. We're absorbing, you know, magazines and everything. We're absorbing it, absorbing it, talking to non-Christian friends, Christian friends. And we're just absorbing the world, absorbing it. And sometimes with not as much discernment as I would like to have for myself. And it, it begins to create a kind of sense within us, an intuition that, that, that is how we function a lot of times. And how did our intuition get to be what it is? And just to list six things. If you think that society corrupts individuals, uh, Truman argues Jean-Jacques Rousseau from the mid-1700s, who's the father of the Romantics, he would be the person to blame for that. So whether you see these things as good or bad, Jean-Jacques Rousseau was the one that really began to make us think society corrupts individuals. Number two, if you think feelings and emotions rather than reason and logic are, re are where real truth is to be found. So feelings and emotion is where real truth is, not so much reason and logic, that is the romantics that Jean-Jacques Rousseau sort of gave birth to in the late 1700s, that feelings, so it, the romantics were the ones that popularized what? Expressing yourself, right? It, which I'm not saying this is, no, listen, as I'm going tonight, I'm not saying these are totally bad or totally good, you see? I'm just telling, this is just what's happened. So the romantics say expressing yourself, right? So letting what's inside of you out, and whether it's poetry and art or whatever it is, that is the, a very high virtue. Number three, if you think the existence of religion indicates that humanity is in bondage to superstition or has abdicated its responsibility to itself, you can thank Karl Marx and Friedrich Nietzsche from the late 1800s. Also, if you, wanna, if you think that the world is sort of self-contained and can explain itself, we have who to thank? Charles Darwin, right, from the same time period. If you think of life as public performance, I just think social media, Life is public performance. Think reality TV shows, right? It's all, it's all about expressing myself in the most public, dramatic way possible and trying to draw as much attention to what I am or what I've done as you possibly can think of. Then you think of the uh, 1800s as well, Oscar Wilde. If you remember Oscar Wilde, his big emphasis, he was kind of the playboy, he was kind of the rebel, and he, he would sit there, he just, whatever he felt like doing, he would do, and he had all the kind of class and sophistication and intelligence to try to make that look like an attractive way of living. If you define yourself in terms of sexual desires, now think about this, this is so relevant. If you define yourself in terms of your sexual desires, now you, today that's common sense. You got heterosexual, you got bisexual, you got homosexual, you got pansexual, everybody defines themselves by those things today. It's just normal, commonplace, that's how we do it. You understand, uh, sexual promiscuity is as old as the book of Genesis. Homosexuality shows up in the 19th chapter of the Bible. There's nothing new about that, but what is new is people defining themselves by their sexual activity. See, it, it, was, it was historically, your sexual activity was just that. It was something you did. It was an activity. But today, it is an identity. That is a new level for, for sexual uh, desire, that it's actually become our identity. And who do we thank for that? Sigmund Freud. 
in the 1900s. So Sigmund Freud is the one who says, we are sexual from birth, we're sexual creatures from birth, and our sexuality is fundamental to who we are. If you want to kind of get down under the surface and understand why women are the way they are, men are the way they are, you dig down to the bottom, it all has to do with sexuality and gender. That's at the bottom of it, it sexuality is at the core. And listen, today, people have debunked many of, of Sigmund Freud's specific theories, but his basic premise is everywhere today, which is that you are who you are sexually. Your, your sexuality defines who you are. And uh, next is, if you think of oppression in terms of psychology and oppressive laws in terms of traditional standards of, say, sexual morality, you can think, he mentions here, Herbert Marcuse, Angela Davis, and the new left of the 1930s to 60s. Now, what, here's what that means. Think of oppression in terms of psychology. See, even going back to, we talked about Karl Marx, oppression was still seen in economic terms, someone being economically exploited or someone being overworked or someone being physically harmed. There was that kind of obvious exploitation, someone stealing from you, hurting you, harming you. That was to oppress you. But this is the big shift that's taken place in our generation, in the last couple generations. Oppression is no longer what someone does to steal from you or to beat you or to attack you or to harm you outwardly. We have internalized oppression. We, we have taken oppression inside, and we've psychologized it. So now, oppression is primarily what someone thinks about you. It's not them stealing your wallet. It's them disagreeing with how you live, choose to live your life. It's someone not giving full recognition and approval to whatever lifestyle you have chosen for yourself, and that would be considered a form of oppression. So, just a quick smattering there, and he goes into much detail, but that's an idea here of some of these uh, historical figures and how they've, uh, how they've affected how we see culture today. You're doing great. Okay. Okay. So, the, the outline will go like this, and this is from Truman. Uh, if, I don't know if you want to jot this down, but if you want to jot this down to have some framework for tonight, uh, it's going to be four part points. Uh, first, you have, uh, so it's two headings with two points under each heading. First is the modern person is, number one, characterized by expressive individualism. The modern person is characterized by expressive individualism. Now, in more traditional societies, more in the, in, more in the past, the way you found your true self, and most people, frankly, wouldn't even use that language, back in, in a more uh, uh, traditional society, you saw the family in which you were born. You may have seen the class in which you were born into and the job that your parents may have had or your dad may have had. And what did you do? You suppressed other desires you may have had and you sort of conformed to what you were supposed to be in that society. And a hero in that society was someone who suppressed their inward impulses and conformed to the role that they were given by birth in society. And I'm not saying this is all good or bad. I'm just saying this is the way it was. And if you suppressed your inward impulses conform to your thought, you know, in society, that was virtuous. That was noble. That's what you should do. Is that true today? No. Today, again, it is the inversion of that. So today, the hero is the opposite. The hero is someone, like every Disney movie. Uh, by the way, th this stuff is, is kind of up in the air this is going to feel tonight. It does, I mean, it, it, it lands in every social media post and every Disney movie and everywhere, I mean, everywhere you go, this stuff connects to real life. So I promise that this really is worth thinking through. But it, what is this? The, today, the expressive individual is this. A person says, 
okay, I, I'm supposed to be this way, my family wants me to be this way, or maybe my religion or my church wants me to be this way, or maybe my, my culture that I've grown up, they want me to be this way. But when I look within myself, I see desires against what my culture says or my family or my tradition or my church. I see desires, and so long as I'm holding those desires down and repressing them, I feel like I am living a lie. I feel like I'm actually being a hypocrite. I feel like I'm being inauthentic. And so the authentic person today is not someone who conforms to anything outside. It's a person who looks within, and they look into their deep dreams and feelings and aspirations, and they begin to express as an individual, right, expressive individualism, they begin to express what they see inside, and the person who does it the most unashamedly, the most boldly, and who even may take persecution, they may say from family or even say from their religion or from whatever, the, the one who stands up and says, no, I'm not going to be the hypocrite you're asking me to be and be untrue to myself. I am going to be who I am, and I'm going to step forward, and I'm going to assert this, and I'm going to command that people respect this, and if I lose approval, that's okay because I'm going to be true to me, and I'm going to be uh, true to my own truth. That person today is a hero in a movie. That person is a hero. So, do you, Again, do you see how big of a shift this is from a more historical view to, to a modern-day view. Let me just uh, give you a few quotes. Um, okay, now, I have to be honest with you, and I'm not really embarrassed that I don't know much about Demi Lovato, but I don't know much about her. I don't really think I want to know much about her based on the little that I know, but uh, I, I want to read to you an extended quote from Demi Lovato. You never knew this day would come, but here it is. It has arrived. So, um, th th she, she was, I guess she was a Disney star when she was like a teenager. Is that correct? And then she, now she's what, like a big music, she sings. So, uh, recently, uh, she, she made headlines for, first of all, she, she cut her hair uh, pretty short, and then she was interviewed about why she was doing some things that she was doing. And I'm going to read an extended quote, because I think you'll see expressive individualism crystal clear in, in a quote. And these are, you don't have to look to find these in our culture. They're everywhere. This is in the air. This is just how people intuitively think. Now, this is what she said in an interview with Drew Barrymore. She said, quote, I was trying something that didn't work for me. Now I'm doing something that is working for me. And instead of feeling judged by everyone, I'm going to say, look, your opinion about me doesn't matter to me. I'm doing what I need to do for myself and my wellness, my well-being. I'm putting myself first in front of my career, and that is something I never did before because I was so preoccupied trying to be this feminine pop star that I just ignored who I am. Now, are you hearing it? I don't care what you guys are going to think. I don't care if you're going to judge me for what I'm doing with my look and whatnot. I'm done trying to conform to this image uh, of a feminine pop star image. I'm, I'm, you're, you're trying to conform me into this pre-made bucket. I got to be just like this. I'm, I'm not doing it. Instead, I'm going to be true to who? Me. I'm, I'm going to be doing what, what is good for me. Then she says, I cut my hair because I just wanted to free myself of all the gender and sexuality norms that were placed on me as, you know, a Christian in the South. And when I cut my hair, I felt so liberated because I wasn't subscribing to an ideal or a belief placed upon me to be something that I'm not. Uh, and now that I'm owning who I am, I feel the happiest I've ever felt. And that's because I'm being honest, you know? Secrets keep you sick. I've heard that a million times and fully believe it now. There's nothing. There's no secrets for the world to find out. I just put it out there and I'm like, hey, this is it. This is me. If you don't like it, fine. Now, do you hear this? This is a perfect example of expressive individualism. She says, okay, the, the culture's telling me to be exactly like this. 
I don't want to be like that because my inward impulses are driving me in a different direction. I'm going to be true to myself no matter if you judge me or not. I don't care. I'm being authentic. And she says here, I'm being honest. Secrets keep you sick. In other words, a secret would be I'm acting like I'm not truly feeling, right? Which would be a hypocrite. That would be inauthentic. Now, in another quote from her, it's a different setting, she said this. This is also, I think, pretty recent. Over the past year and a half, I've been doing some healing and some self-reflective work. And through this work, I've had the revelation that I I identify as non-binary, so she won't be considered male or female. Um, With that said, I'll officially be changing my pronouns to they, them. I feel that this best represents the fluidity I feel in my gender expression and, uh, and allows me to feel most authentic and true to the person I know I am and am still discovering that I am. If you want to love someone of the same sex, love someone of the same sex. Be yourself. Don't be afraid of what people think. I'm very fluid. I think love is love. You can find it in any gender. Now, do you guys identify? I mean, not whether you've heard that quote or not. Do you hear things like that virtually all the time in in society? So now, just try to think for a second. Let's let's think of an age demographic. Again, I spend a lot of time with high school students. Let's just put yourself in the mind of a teenager. If you grew up and uh, through your phone and through the computer, you're hearing that message maybe in a way more prominent than some of us did growing up. If you're hearing this everywhere, and then you come into my Bible class, your Bible class, or Greg Rentz's Bible class, or whoever's Bible class as a high school student, and you sit down and we walk through Romans 1 or we walk through 1 Corinthians 6, what I find is my students in their minds go, I know what the Bible says, and I think it's true that all those lifestyles are not right by God's Word. But in their emotions, they don't quite know why. It just doesn't seem to make sense. It feels like God arbitrarily is just against certain kinds of people and for other kinds of people. And God just sort of arbitrarily makes this decision. I I really love uh, heterosexual monogamy and fidelity between a husband and a wife for life. Uh, But anything else outside of that, it's almost like God just has this arbitrary dislike of or something like that. And and what I'm saying is, if we live our life in the stream of our culture, which we do, and then we occasionally hear the Bible or occasionally hear a biblical worldview, it's going to feel like we're getting uh, whiplash as we jump between these two different storylines. And it's going to be very hard for especially younger people today, if they're awash in expressive individualism, to then begin to make emotional sense out of why God says what He says. It's one thing to say the Bible says it. It's another thing to say, this is good for men and women. This is good for us in human flourishing. Even if there's difficulties and confusion, this is good for us. This is what God made us for. It's not arbitrary. This is the way God made us as distinctly male and female and and something that we need to be uh, thinking through. I think, and I think Papa's thinking of it too, if I'm reading his eyes right. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. And that right there is completely against denying yourself. Like they would say, no, 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 there's anything I can't do, it's deny myself. I have to look inside myself. It's just dangerous stuff. Yes. And the opposite, exactly the opposite of what we're supposed to. So that when we are convicted of sin, we repent, we turn away, and they're saying, now that's how I feel. If it feels good, do it. Yes. And the opposite of Scripture for sure. And I, I did this two years ago, and it's so embarrassing for me to even read this. And I know this is getting dated already. But I got to read, let it go for just a second. Are you, I don't think you're prepared. Let, let me just read you. By the way, I did get to see let it go with Kelly, Leah, and her mom. So that was an experience for me uh, as a man. But, uh, but uh, yeah, Frozen. So everybody knows Frozen. And uh, l- let me just, uh, 
Here's why I'm doing this to myself right now, okay? Because this is going to be painful to read it out loud. When you hear the lyrics, I'm just going to read part of it, but uh, when you hear it, I hope you realize, you know, I know that even in the movie, this, what she's doing in that scene is, is kind of looked upon in some negative ways later in the movie, but it's the song everyone remembered. And imagine how many eight-year-old girls and boys were running around singing that for three years to where we were like, please, please stop. I will pay you money. Just, we, we've heard it. But just listen to the expressive individualism in uh, part of the lyric. Uh, don't let them in. Don't let them see. Be the good girl you always have to be. So here she is trying to conform, right, to this pattern that's been put over her. Conceal, don't feel. So she's concealing the true self. Uh, don't let them know. Well, now they know. Let it go. Let it go. Can't hold it back anymore. Turn it away and slam the door. I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. It's funny how some distance makes everything seem small and the fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Now, as, as funny as it is coming from, you know, this cute little Disney song, that is a perfect, almost sermon of a false worldview. <laughs> so what, what she's saying is, I've got to get away from the restraints. I've got to be true to myself. I've got to stop concealing who I am. And now there's no right or wrong. I'm free. I can do whatever I want. I'm going to set the rules for myself. I'm, I'm throwing off the shackles. Now she ends up alone in an ice palace. So that's where I guess that, <laughs> I guess that's where you end up in that particular situation. But what I want you to do is, in the, in the next few months, as you are just involved with pop culture, I want you to have it's kind of like if someone teaches you a new word, you suddenly hear it everywhere for the next week. Have you ever had that happen? I want you guys, all of us, to be more aware, like hyper aware when you hear this stuff in the future, when you see it. And I got, let me read one more, okay? I could read these all day long. But um, I want to read, if I can find this thing in time, I want to read a, a, a quote from, uh, oh man, I may not have the place, from, remember the Bruce Jenner uh, controversy? When uh, Bruce Jenner, uh, the Olympic gold medal winner, was declaring that he would be, uh, become Caitlyn Jenner, I think I've lost my spot, but I can, I can at least summarize it if I can't find it. Oh, here it is. So let me just read a couple quotes from Bruce Jenner about his uh, gender transition, as he would call it, and see if you hear it again. This is when he's being interviewed by Diane Sawyer a few years ago, I think it's 2015. Here's what Bruce Jenner says. I look at it this way, and he talks about Bruce as if it's another person, okay? I look at it this way. Bruce was always telling a lie. He's lived a lie his whole life about who he is, and I can't do that any longer. And then Diane Sawyer says, are you a woman? He says, um, yes. For all intents and purposes, I am a woman. People look at me differently. They see you as this macho male. In other words, they see me as this macho male. But my heart and my soul and everything I do in life is it's, it's part of me. That female side is part of me. It's who I am. Uh, I was not genetically born that way. And as of now, I have all the male parts and all of that kind of stuff. So in a lot of ways, we're different, but we still identify as female. And that's very hard for Bruce Jenner to say, because why? I don't want to disappoint people. Now, again, you see, there's a society telling him he must be the macho man. That's the society is telling him. And he doesn't want to disappoint that society, but he knows he's living a lie. So he's got to be true to himself. And when he looks inside, he's more female than male. So he's got to self-actualize. He's got to bring out the authentic self and live it out so that whether he gets judged or not, whether people look at him funny or not, he says, I've got to be true to myself. And that, again, that's the authentic person. He's no longer a hypocrite. He is now living with, he would consider integrity. He would consider that honesty. He would consider that something noble and worthy of, of being commended. And so again, as you guys are experiencing to this, just be aware of this kind of expression. Anything, Jerry? Okay, so he, let's, let's move to the, to the next point. We could talk a lot more about that. Uh, the, the second point would be this. Um, the modern person first is characterized by expressive individualism, but 
they also now, number two, see happiness as an inner, as a sense of inner psychological well-being. Okay, so the modern person sees happiness as an inner, as a sense of inner psychological well-being. Now, let me try to explain something here. So, why is it if, if I, as a, say, a conservative Bible-believing Christian, I believe the Bible is the Word of God, I'm conservative in the sense that I believe the Bible is true in all that it says, not a theological liberal, if, if that's what I am, if I, if I look inside, right, and I see this, by God's grace, work of the Holy Spirit and a desire to pursue the Lord, imperfect, if I look within and I see that and I try to authenticate that, it doesn't work quite the same, does it? If I say, if I look within and see there's a, there's a transformation of Jesus, there's a Holy Spirit, still flawed, but I want to live a holy life and I want to be consistent, the, the culture doesn't like that kind of expressive individualism, do you see? So here's what we got to understand. Why is it that the culture is selective? How is it selective about which identities it allows you to select and which ones it doesn't? In fact, let, let me just give an illustration uh, from another pastor. I thought this was helpful. Just to, just, here's what I mean by this. Uh, imagine an Anglo-Saxon warrior walking the streets of, I guess, Europe or Britain or something, you know, a thousand years ago. Anglo-Saxon warriors walking the streets of, of Britain, and they, they look within themselves, and they see a desire for revenge and honor and even perhaps shedding someone's blood if they cross you and get in the way or dishonor you. You know, it's an honor and shame and honor, respect culture. So this man is someone is dishonors him, and it's someone of lower rank. And this person goes, you know, if... <laughs> If we let people do this, social fabric is going to completely unravel. I can't allow this. So he looks within and sees a desire for revenge, and he says, you know, that's who I am. I, I'm going to act on that. And he strikes the person, and he kills this person. Now, in that society, he looks within and sees that desire for vengeance and says, that's who I am. Like, I'm all for this. Like, this is going to help society flourish. I love it. Now, a thousand years ago, we don't tend to think about this, but an Anglo-Saxon warrior, I'm sure some of them somewhere, would look within and also see same-sex attraction. They may not write about it as often, right? But would that have happened? Certainly. Somebody somewhere, an Anglo-Saxon warrior, looks within, they see same-sex attraction. And what they would say is, that's not really me. I'm going to suppress that. I'm going to get rid of that. But the, the desire for revenge, the desire to uphold honor, the desire to smite someone if they cross me, that's me. The aggressive me, the assertive me, the bloodshedding me, that's me. But the, the same-sex attraction, that's not me. I'm going to squelch that. Could you see how that could happen? Now, fast forward. Let's just pick Athens, Georgia. Uh, say... Say a man of the same age is walking down the street of Athens, Georgia, and somebody is mean to him, someone cuts him off, someone does something to him in the traffic, and he feels a desire for revenge. He, he feels anger welling up within him. And he's going to say, that's not me. I need to go to anger management, and I need to get this dealt with. I need to get that out of me. That's not the real me. That's just some little peripheral problem I have. I can sometimes be vindictive. I'll go to some therapy. I'll work through anger management. I'm going to work that out of my system. That same 20-year-old guy in downtown Athens looks within himself today and sees same-sex attraction, and what does he do? That's who I am. That's me, and I'm going to act on it. Now, we think expressive individualism makes us free to be ourselves, but we don't really realize that our culture actually determines, whether we realize it or not, our culture's really got this, like, value-laden grid that it lays over our imagination and our heart that we don't even see, because, you know, it's ubiquitous, it's everywhere all the time, so we don't think about how it's influencing our standards and our judgments. So we look at our heart through a value-charged grid from our culture, and a thousand years ago, the grid was the opposite of what it is now. You see? A thousand years ago, aggression, I love it. Same-sex attraction, not me. I gotta work that out. Today, aggression, that's not me. Work that out. Same-sex attraction, that, that's who I am. So we think we're just freely picking our true self. We don't realize, this is a bit of an illusion, isn't it? 
Actually, the culture is telling us which things inside of us can be our true self and which things we absolutely cannot allow to be our true self. So, even in the sexual realm, the law of consent is still a binding law. That's why rape and uh, pedophilia are absolutely unacceptable today, no matter the… Mo There's a few really radical people who are arguing for pedophilia today, if you've seen some of that, but that's still fringe. Lord willing, that will never become mainstream, although you never know what will happen in 40 years. But let's, right now, most everybody would say pedophilia and, and rape are horrible because they don't involve consent. But they would say other than consent, other than consent, every sexual activity between consenting adults is fine, as long as you are not physically harming anyone not involved. And I would say a person who feels that way intuitively, they're looking at their heart through a value-laden, charged grid that they don't actually realize is there. It's influencing them and determining what they're allowed to express and what they are not allowed to express. And here's what uh, Carl Truman does a great job uh, saying here. Why do some things in our heart get the green light and some things in our heart get the red light? And the answer is a combination of things. Number one, yes, it's got to be something from within, but number two, it has to be Okay, so number one, we look within. Number two, Freud taught us that the most important desires are sexual in nature. Today, is that not true? Like, that's the number one thing. I mean, there's a few others that are up there, but that's like at the top. So, you look within, number one. Number two, it's got to be sexual in nature. Number three, this is important, because it can't be anything. A pedophile cannot say today, although it's logically consistent, they can't say, I was born this way. I've only ever been attracted to the kinds of people that I'm attracted to. I can't help it. I didn't choose it. I'm not, you know, can't I express my sexuality? People are, even, though it's, even though it's the same argument, people won't let that one fly because of the, this consent issue, uh, because children can't consent would be the argument. But the, number three, you look within, number two, it's got to be sexual in nature. Number three, it's got to be connected in some way to being oppressed or a victim. It's got to be. So, a rapist is an oppressor, therefore it doesn't count. A, a pedophile is an oppressor, a, a victimizer, therefore it doesn't count. You can't bring that one in. But any sexual desire in your heart that is connected to consent and victimology in some sense, oppression in some sense, the, the Marxist categories of oppressor and oppressed, if you can connect your sexuality with oppression, you get the green light and you get the biggest green light you can imagine. So, uh, what you see is from the 19, 1969 uh, on, the, the, the homosexual movement, especially with gay men, uh, I think it's the Stonewall riots or whatever it was called in 1969, where they, 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 they began to argue for police oppression and brutality towards their community. That was their argument. And then they had the AIDS crisis and epidemic, the HIV crisis in the 80s. Now, think about this. There was actually a book written in the 80s by some men arguing for homosexuality called After the Ball that uh, Vody Bauckham uh, helped me get to know what this was two PhDs, and they said, listen, the AIDS crisis right now is threatening to destroy the homosexual community, not just in terms of death, but in terms of the view people have of it. Because it looks really negative. It, it, it's creating, there's, there's disease and death that's attached to the homosexual lifestyle in a special way. And so if we don't handle this crisis the right way, it could, it could be a turning point in a bad way, they would argue, for this homosexual community. So they said, we can't let this crisis go to waste. Let's frame it as if we are the victim. So our identity was not chosen. I didn't choose to be a homosexual. I'm just acting true to myself. And the AIDS crisis is, a, is adding to the fact that we are victims. And what it did was it changed the cultural sympathies towards the gay community drastically, like few things have. In the 80s and 90s, people began to feel a sympathy for the homosexual community. Now listen, I'm not saying now we shouldn't feel sympathy for someone who has AIDS or who's, I mean, you gotta understand what I'm saying here. Of course we show sympathy. We do everything we can to help. Of course, of course. But what I'm saying is they turned that as we are victims. And then what they did was, this is huge. They said, historically, the great, oppress, the great oppressor is, quote, these are all fancy words, heteronormative 
uh, culture. Heteronormative culture is the culture that's made heterosexuality normal, and guess who's to blame for that? Your Bible. Christianity, Western Christianity and Christendom over the last 1,500 to 2,000 years has normalized a monogamous say, uh, uh, heterosexual marriage between a man and a woman. We've normalized that, and so now you're considered abnormal if you are anything other. And so they would say Christianity is the oppressor. They are the victimizers. They're the problem with society. They are the ones that make us feel like we're doing something wrong, and we need to overthrow the hegemony, right? The culturally dominant view, the heteronormative view. We've got to overthrow that, which is the Christian view, the oppressive view, and we've got to be free. And so, they've connected their inward sexual desires with being victims, which gives them a, a high status in our society. And they, their desire is to overthrow anything that would say that homosexual behavior in any sense is not to be uh, praised. And instead of looking inside, which is what you're talking about there, always looking inside, we are warned about what's inside. Mark 7, verse 21, for, this is from Jesus, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And so no wonder when they look inside, no wonder when we look inside, we don't find anything good. Let's, we can't look inside for our joy, for our satisfaction, for anything good, because it's deceitful in there. And Jesus lists all of those things. And so um, what Jesus says right here helps make that make perfect sense. They're looking inside and they're saying, no, that's truly who I am. That's truly okay. And no wonder then Christianity is the, is the bad guy yes. in, in this because the Bible, they believe, is oppressive to what they're, they want to do. Yes, that's exactly right. And um, let me just make a comment here about um, same-sex marriage in our society. So, this is just something you could store in your mind. This is not meant to like beat someone over the head. This is just something to keep in your mind as a conversational point. I found that it's helpful in conversations on the topic with someone who might not agree just on same-sex marriage in our culture today. So, here's a, here's a line of argument. I got this from Brian Anderson, who's actually a Catholic uh, kind of apologist. But, but here, here's, here's a way of talking about that subject. The argument about same-sex marriage goes something like this. You tell me if this is basically correct. Um, the reason why marriage has historically been between a man and a woman is because of really religious views, people would say, or traditional views. We don't say, I don't believe in God, someone says. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in your Bible. So, who, who is, you know, I don't believe your Bible. Who says it has to be between a man and a woman? If two adult consenting men love each other, they're not hurting anyone, why can't they have equal rights, right? Equal marriage rights as, as a man and a woman or two women? Would you say that's a pretty basic argument there? Okay, so just something to keep in your mind in a, in a loving, gracious way in a conversation, just on that point, something you can say is, if, 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 if we're going to start with the idea of who says it has to be, right? Who says it has to be? You know, that doesn't stop with just two women or two men. Who says it has to be can be applied to any aspect of marriage. Once you throw out that it's a man and a woman, a, a, a husband and a wife, a potential mother and father in a lifelong commitment, especially if, if the Lord gives children for the flourishing of children and a stable environment. That's what marriage is biblically. It, it has to have the complementarity of husband and wife, mother, father, potentiality of children. Um, now, as soon as you say the who says game, you, you, I, I want to start pushing people beyond what they're comfortable with. 
So I'm not trying to gross anybody out here. I'm just, this is what I would just do. I, I do this in class every year, okay? I do concentric circles on my board. I just start going out. So we start with man and woman in the center circle, and then we do one other circle is man and man or woman and woman. And then I say, let's draw an, another circle. And my students start getting uncomfortable. They, they, they're, where, where are you going here? So who says it has to be between two people? I mean, if we're, if we're really just saying marriage can be redefined according to consenting adult relationships, then there's a new term today. It's not the couple, it's the thruple. So let's say that there are three men who want the tax rights and the hospital visitation rights and everything that comes with a marital relationship. They want marriage equality. And who are you? You, you know, you, someone might say you're coming from a bigoted or biased perspective. Who are you to say that three consenting adult men who would like to enter into what they call a marriage, why can't we have equal marital rights? And what I found is in today's society, people are still a little bit feeling like that's a little distasteful. They don't really like it. Although in Massachusetts, it's beginning. There, there is the beginning of these kinds of laws being made. So what I want to start doing is, okay, are you okay with polygamy then? How about a man married to multiple women? What about an opposite sex quartet? I'm not making this up, okay? So two men and two women want to enter into, not, not polygamy is where one person's married to multiple people. Polyamory is where they're all married to each other, okay? Which I know biblically that's not a thing, but in our culture, if you have an opposite sex quartet, two men and two women want to enter into a full marital relationship. Now, listen, if you're going to say the who says game, who says it has to be a man and a woman, I'm going to fire right back. Who says it has to be two people? You can't use the Bible, okay? You can't use tradition. Who says, who says it has to be lifelong? Why not, instead of wedlock, let's change our new term, wed lease? You lease a car instead of buying it, why don't you lease a marriage? This is a real term. Uh, you can read about this. So now today people are talking about doing a six-year commitment or a five-year commitment where your, your marriage automatically resolves without a divorce after five years, or you can renew it. You know, you can choose to keep renting the car. You can, you can renew it after five years. Who says marriage has to be lifelong unless ended by divorce if you're going to play the who says game with marriage? And so what I, what I want to say is you can push this argument out to where almost even secular people will become uncomfortable. I, I, and, and I, I want to say, okay, what you're actually doing when you begin to redefine marriage in any way is you're actually destroying marriage entirely. Because what you're doing is you're saying a marriage is nothing other than, a it's based on nothing but contract law. A couple of adults or any number of adults, why don't you marry your dog and whoever, all right? I'm serious. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to be flippant. Uh, the, you know, the way people laugh at the dog comment right now is the way people laughed at homosexual marriage 30 years ago. So laughter is not an argument, right? So we, let's just be logically consistent. If you want to marry your dog or if you want to marry multiple people, who's to say that you can't do that? Why can't it be marital if you're not using the Bible or the man-woman aspect, the mother-father aspect? And, and uh, I, I could take it to a further level, but I'm going to stop there. You could just imagine where this could go. And I, I want to push people on that and say, okay, I want to know a logical reason why you want to change marriage from, from man and woman to man and man and woman and woman. What's a logical reason why you're going to expand the definition of marriage, but then have a foolproof stopping point there and not bleed into the next level? Because this isn't a slippery slope. This is a logical necessity that once you have consenting adults, it's contract law. You can make contracts in as many shapes and sizes as consent comes in, which means once we change marriage from husband, wife, potential mother and father, we've actually destroyed marriage without realizing it. Now listen, I'm all for marriage equality. If you mean by that, everybody has the right to marry someone of the opposite sex because that's what marriage is. So everybody, any man, an adult man has the right to marry a woman and any woman has the, marriage, the right to marry a man as long as they agree to marry you. That's an important point. We're married. I don't know who you are. That's, that's not the way to do it, okay? But there, you can marry whoever you want. So marriage, though, by definition is that. And so um, it's kind of like saying, I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to so much mock. It's kind of like, you know, you, you, you can't throw the soccer ball during the game. 
Like, you can't just change the rules and still have the sport. You know what I'm saying? Like, you, if you're kicking the basketball around during the basketball game, I'm sorry, that's not what the game is. Once you change the rules, you actually no longer have that thing anymore. Do you see what I'm saying? It's no longer basketball. It's no longer soccer. It's a, you can invent a new sport and call it something else. But you, you can't do that with marriage without actually, uh, I think, in a large part, ruining uh, what marriage is. Okay. Um, man, we're, we're out of time, and I... Uh, hmm... I'll go just a few more minutes, and then we'll pick up next week. But we, we uh, and if we have to add a third week to this topic, that's okay because I mean this is this is really important. So okay, num- number two uh, was um, the modern person. Number two sees happiness as an inner as inner psychological well-being. So again, my inward sense of happiness, Truman says, comes fundamentally from being outwardly who and what I feel myself to be inwardly. When I can be outwardly what I feel myself to be inwardly. Inner psychological well-being is achieved. What I am not allowed to be outwardly, uh, okay, so so when I am not, listen to this, when I am not allowed to be outwardly what I feel myself to be inwardly, I cannot truly be me. And he says, this is dependent on psychological well-being. This is why today you will hear things like, how how much more than ever are we hearing the the phrases hate speech, cancel culture? safe spaces, trigger warnings, all that kind of stuff. The reason that vocabulary is exploding since 2010 or 11, 12, like th- that language is everywhere you look. I, like if, if, a, if a conservative, and this could be a politically conservative speaker, it could be a Christian or a non-Christian, it could be uh, whatever. If, if, a, if, a, if, a, if a politically conservative speaker comes to speak at a college campus, you all know what happens, don't you? There's a riot. People break glass in the windows. They have to have a police escort for this relatively just kind of soft-spoken individual. It could be a man or a woman. I've seen all kinds of people in the last few years. There's a violent protest sometimes will break out on campus, and then people will say that they are being, that, that there is speech violence taking place. Now, the goal right now is not to mock that. The goal is, why is that happening? And the answer is this. I think at least in large part, Thomas Jefferson would say things like, listen, if it doesn't break my leg or pick my pocketbook, it doesn't hurt me. That is no, you know, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Now, that was never true in the first place, but today we've swung in the opposite direction. Now, if someone does not approve, not just tolerate in the sense of allow it legally, right? That's not enough. If someone does not actually commend me and approve of me and praise me for my particular choices and lifestyle choices, expressing myself, they are actually harming the most important part about me, which is my inner psychological sense of well-being. We've psychologized the self. So now, if anyone disapproves of me, they are attacking me in the most dramatic way possible. It's not less important than a physical assault. It's not less bad than a physical assault. This is why when, a, when two gay men go to the, the, the cake baking shop, right, and they say, listen, this Christian cake baker, they say, sir, we, we would like you to make us a cake that will celebrate our homosexual union. The cake baker says, listen, I've been baking you guys cakes for eight years for all kinds of other things. I've got no problem baking you cakes in general, just like I bake cakes for selfish people like me or liars like me. You know, I bake cakes for sinners, but I can't bake a cake with the explicit purpose of using my artistic abilities to celebrate what I believe is wrong, right? I mean, can you imagine flipping this to something? Like, imagine asking um, someone who had been… Uh, imagine, imagine, okay, this is… Truman's example. Imagine, just in Christian terms, imagine a Presbyterian family comes to a Baptist pastor and says, we believe in uh, infant baptism. We know you do not, but we feel like you must 
submit to our wishes here because we feel like to be authentic parents, we must baptize our child. And you're a pastor. We command that you baptize our, our baby. I think we'd all agree that's a little bit weird. Like, you don't, you don't do that. But in this worldview, if the cake owner says, in, I love you guys. I care about y'all. I'll, I'll bake you a cake for anything you want, but not to celebrate this that I believe is wrong in my, my religious views. At that point, it's not okay for the couple to walk two minutes down the street, which they could have in this illustration. They could have walked two minutes down the street and gotten a cake for their gay ceremony from another baker who would have done it. The, why, why wouldn't they? This, okay, now this is where we as Christians sometimes don't get it at all. We're just like, what's wrong? Like, why don't you just go down and go to another cake baker? But we're not, we're not seeing where they're coming from. And I still think it's wrong, but we got to step into their shoes. Where they're coming from is, no, you are assaulting my dignity. This is how it's being read. Now, listen, that's the furthest thing from what we are actually doing. We, we believe how God has made us that we are trying to provide truth here. But from their perspective, they're saying, you are assaulting my inner psychological well-being. And until you can, not just consent, but until you approve of what I'm doing and support what I'm doing with your artwork, I am still under attack here. I'm still being, uh, being mistreated. And so we need to understand that this inner psychological sense of well-being is essential to the modern sense uh, of self. Jerry, some, uh, we, we will wrap up in just a minute. Yeah, I'm thinking uh, Romans 1.32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And I think that's what they're, in, in what you're describing there, is they're asking that all of us give approval, that that, not just to um, the lie that they want to live. And they know that it's not true. They know that they're trading um, the truth for a lie, the, the, the grim exchange, if you will. Yes. So let, let me, I will close. I think I said I was going to close on the last point. Let me do one more. This won't be as long. Let me close on this point. This will be point number three, and this is the modern world sees all things imminently. This is I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T-L-Y. The, the modern world sees all things imminently. That means uh, bound within the physical world, the natural world. Now, just real quick on this. Charles Darwin, although he was not an atheist per se, Darwin allowed the world to feel intellectually satisfied to speak of the natural world as all that exists. That Darwin claimed to be able to explain the world on its own terms without regard to the divine, without regard to the transcendent. So all you have instead of transcendent is the imminent, just the physical world around you. Now listen to what happens when that happens. If you believe like our culture just even though we use the word God, you know, God bless America, we, we use the word God in our culture, people don't mean much by God anymore, right? It's, it's more, we just act like the world's what's here. Like, this is it. What, what science can show you, and that's what's real. The imminent frame, the, the, the immediate world around us, what it's done is this. Any sense that you and I were designed with a capital D, with purpose, with a capital P, right? That we have objective purpose, objective morality, that we were made by God in His image for good and for glory and for greatness, that that idea is entirely missing from our society. So instead of the transcendent that we were made for a purpose, and listen, if, if we're made for an objective purpose, then we must suppress our sinful impulses and conform to what God's called us to because in the biblical world, the most, and I'm quoting another Christian, the most obedient you is the truest you. From a biblical perspective, the true you is the most holy you, the most obedient you, the most Christ-like you, the most God-glorifying you. That's the you you were designed to be, and when you conform to that, you're not being inauthentic, you're being authentically you. You're not being a hypocrite. A hypocrite is someone who says they're walking with the Lord, but is inwardly not. But no, an authentic Christian is someone who says, listen, despite all my sinful desires, I am putting those to death by the Spirit, and I'm conforming to, the, to Christ. I'm being transformed by the renewing of my mind. 
But because the world has cut its cord, the umbilical cord has been cut right from the transcendent, now what do we do? We can't get our objective purpose from any kind of design. We don't have it. We have, I mean, Darwinism by definition is you have no purpose. You are unintelligently designed, which is no, no insult, right? Sorry to, you know, your, your, your brain was unintelligently designed. I mean, literally, I mean, we are not here for any purpose. So if that's true, you can't look up for meaning. So what? You look in. You've got to look in for meaning. And if you, it, now think about this. If you think your, your ultimate self is looking within, then anybody who brings along their holy book full of lies from a God who doesn't exist and tells you, even if they have tears in their eyes and love in their heart, they say, listen, living that lifestyle, whether it's premarital sex or pornography or whether it's homosexual behavior or any number of things, adultery, whatever it may be, if you're living that way, although it gives temporary fleeting pleasure, you are actually destroying yourself. You're destroying yourself. And there is forgiveness, washing, cleansing, and Christ will restore you, and He will make you chaste. He will make you holy. He will make you more like Him, and that will be your true fulfillment. And so, I think, just to wrap it up, I think that what's happening today is when Christians talk to the world, we are largely talking past each other. Because we will say something that's immediately misinterpreted as hate speech over here, and we're talking past. So, I think we actually owe it to a lost world to, and this is a tough book, but books like this, uh, to, to read books to where we can get into the mindset, not so that we can buy into the ideology at all, so that we can best love those who are thinking that way, best explain why maybe their impulses and intuitions are what they are, and so that we can try to win them to a better and uh, more uh, light-giving and life-giving alternative, which is the, the gospel uh, itself. Jerry, some closing yeah. thoughts. Uh, Romans 6.20. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? So that's the part what you've been talking about there, Mark, is that, that there's no fruit to that kind of sin, to any sort of sin. For in the end of these things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you, lead, uh, you get leads to sanctification and it's in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's good. Can you pray for us, Jerry? Father, we are very grateful for your word, especially when we live in a world um, full of lies. Um, and we know that those lies have uh, um, made its way to our hearts. Um, at times, Lord, we pray that we would be quick to race back to the cross to go to your word, um, to humble ourselves, to not um, make ourselves the number one um, priority or the, or the number one uh, way to um, make decisions, but instead to look to you for wisdom and to trade in all our sin for all of the righteousness of Christ that he is offering. And Lord, we are thankful that um, although the wages of sin are death, that you took that. And the Lord Jesus um, paid that, the, the huge penalty, by going to the cross um, in order to free us from what is uh, dangerous and what is sinful and what is uh, only temporary um, in its pleasure um, for an eternal joy and an eternal peace and uh, the great love that the Lord Jesus brings. So, Lord, we commit um, our lives to you and ask that you would help us to know um, the truth 
um, from the lies and to uh, hang on to the truth, for the truth sets us free. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So again, we will spend at least one more week uh, dealing with some of these things, hoping to get into a lot of Scripture uh, next week, uh, Lord willing, and uh, we'll, we'll pick it up from there. So thank you all again for coming.